Judgment Studios. The Michelle Obama Podcast is out now on Spotify. This series brings listeners inside the former First Lady's most candid and personal conversations, showing us what's possible when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open up and focus on what matters most. Joining the former First Lady is an array of special guests, including Marion and Craig Robinson, Conan O'Brien, Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Norris, and Dr. Sharon Malone. Episodes focus on relationships that shape us, from siblings and close friends to partners, parents, and mentors, to our relationship with ourselves and our health. Listen free at Spotify.com slash Michelle Obama. Okay, so when this whole virus thing emerges, it starts looking scary. I call my mama and I call her and I tell her, Mama, you need to be careful and not go anywhere for a while because what the scientists are saying is that this thing is more dangerous for older folk. And she tells me, oh, I hear you. But not to worry, she says. Because, well, I ain't going nowhere but to the church no ways. The, the church, the church. And I'm like, no, 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 mom. Going to church is what I'm talking about. Snappers. She attends a 5,000-person, several-acre megaplex bigger than several city blocks. Oh, it'll be fine, fine. They're really good people up to church, real good people. <laughs> it don't care how good the people are. Stay your black behind up in the house. The Lord protects his own. Makes a way out of no way. Mama, that doesn't even make it. Well, I got to go, son. I got to go kiss the kids for Mama, mother. And now, now she's not picking up my phone calls. So I'm 2,000 miles away, calling other people, trying to get somebody else to check on her, to talk some sense. Neighbors, cousins, nothing. I call her first thing Sunday morning, nothing. Sunday afternoon, nothing. Sunday evening. Sunday evening again. And again. Finally, finally, she picks up and I'm scared. And I'm angry and I'm scared. Mama! Mama! Did you go to church? Church? Boy, there's a virus running amok. Lord doesn't appreciate foolishness. And I want to scream at her, but I'm too happy to scream at her. (laughs) Isn't that what family is really all about? So today, on Snap Judgment, our Mother's Day special, Modern Family. Amazing stories from people who love their mamas as much as I love mine. My name is Glenn Washington. Yes, she drives me crazy. But then, I drive her crazy too. When you're listening, it's a snap judgment. Find a path that no one else can see. Snap Judgments, Anna Sussman has a story. In the still early hours of the morning, in the Cottonwood campground deep in the Colorado desert, a tiny nine-year-old girl named Mandy 
quietly pulled on her sandals, opened the door to her family's camper, and tiptoed out into the vast desert. When the family woke up, they had no idea where Mandy was. All they saw was sand. Everything in me stopped. Everything goes empty. I felt a deep, empty dread, and especially for a child. Hannah Nyala was the first person to respond from the Joshua Tree Search and Rescue Team. We got the knock on our door. I got sent immediately to the campground to try to secure the scene, to try to figure out if we could get a footprint, to do all the basic things that you have to do uh, to try to lock it down. The first thing Hannah did was talk to Mandy's mom and sister about Mandy's shoes. What size were they? What did they look like? Hannah was able to find an imprint of Mandy's shoe pretty easily near their camper. She drew a picture of it, measured it, and then went searching for a trail of these tiny footprints to lead her out of the campground. I went alongside the main road of the campground about 30 feet out. Time felt split. It was absolutely racing like a freight train on the one hand with me being behind Mandy and not having a good track yet. And then the other piece of it, time was passing excruciatingly slowly uh, while I was looking for that first footprint. It took less than an hour for Hannah and the tracking team to find Mandy's trail outside the campground. Hannah circled the first footprint with her tracking stick, a sawed-off golf club, and then she followed little Mandy into the desert, step by step. As the hours passed, we were aware of the time. What I think about in the desert is temperature first. It's going to start dropping quickly. That's foremost on my mind more than anything else, is we've got to get to this child before she's facing hypothermia. After more than an hour of working the track itself and on her trail, um, we then had uh, one helicopter in the air, and there was a fixed wing as well, which also was crisscrossing the area. They built a search base, emergency operations vehicles, a fuel truck. People were bringing meals in. It was a big effort. There were a lot of people. There were well over 100 are you building a relationship with her in your head? You do. You, I build a relationship from the beginning. By the time I found the first footprint, I was as connected to Mandy as I could get to a person. And when I started calling her name, you're calling her Mandy, Mandy. She was not my daughter, but I felt about her as if she were my family. I was that focused on bringing her back. Here's where Hannah's story becomes incredible, because her actual family, her son and daughter, were missing. Uh, By the day that we started this search for Mandy, my daughter and son had been missing for well over a year. Before she ever became a search and rescue tracker, Hannah led a very different life. She owned a retail home decor shop in Oklahoma, and she was in an abusive marriage. For years, she endured brutal violence at the hands of her husband. 
until the night she had had enough. He choked me into unconsciousness. Now, he had done that before, but this time it hit me really hard that my two children were in their bedrooms in that house with him and that I was dying and would they would have nobody then. One day later, Hannah hurried her son and daughter into her car with a backpack full of clothes and drove away into hiding. I did not expect us to survive. I believed that it would just be a matter of time till he caught up with us and did what he had always said he would do if I ever left. So Hannah sought protection from police, family service agencies, private security guards. But she says her husband found them over and over again. She says he hunted them. At several points, and in four different states, we had the police involved and had police protection. And the officers put me in a Kevlar vest, a bulletproof vest. They had a person stationed outside the house and inside the house, outside the door of the bedroom that my children and I slept in. Her ex-husband did get the kids. A judge allowed him temporary custody. She says the judge argued that wife abuse was irrelevant to child custody. He took the kids, and he didn't bring them back. He'd have her daughter call Hannah, and then snatch the phone away and say, you'll never see your kids again. Hannah moved from state to state, and eventually moved to the middle of nowhere, here, to the desert. The desert at first was off-putting, because it was so forsaken, and I did not really know why (laughs) I had chosen this. She started to work as a volunteer park ranger, but it turns out, as a survivor of abuse, she was particularly well-suited to tracking missing persons. So she was invited to join the Joshua Tree search and rescue team. As a battered woman and someone who was actively being stalked still, there are certain things that I pay more attention to than you would. So you don't necessarily need to see if there are footprints around your house, coming to your house at night. The level of vigilance that you have to have in order to stay ahead of somebody who's stalking you gives you really good skills, actually, for being a tracker. That kind of vigilance doesn't let a lot of stuff slide. When Hannah and her kids would come home at the end of the day, she would search the ground around her house for tracks. The road has become a single track, rutted pavement, and there was a dead coyote in the middle of the road. And here there's just telephone poles and sand. And that's the house? That's the house. It's a nice little house. It is easily driven around before you come in. You can see tracks and footprints all the way around. The fence was. Looking for a footprint on hard packed gravelly sand takes a mind-boggling attention to detail. Looking on the desert floor, all I saw were sticks and pebbles. But kind of right here in this two square feet in front of us, what do you see? Well, at least six different people have passed through here. You can see that people have stepped on, see this little stick right here and rock? That's been stepped on. I have to say, I see nothing where you're pointing right now. I just see dirt. Okay. You have part of a shoe here, um, and now, I mean, a grain of sand just fell down from it. 
Did you say a grain of sand just fell off of that rock? Yeah, it did. You saw a grain of sand yes. fall off? <laughs> yes, I did. That's the kind of detail. It seems to be, to me, an awfully exposed place for a vulnerable person to go. It is extremely exposed, but when you are in a place like this, it is not easy to come upon me unawares. I see you coming from a long ways away <laughs> in the desert, and it provided me safety at a level that I'd never had. But she wasn't entirely safe. She still couldn't protect her kids from everything. And even in the desert, her husband would manage to get the kids again. At one point, he took them from a court hearing and disappeared. There was a nationwide manhunt for her son and daughter. As ironic as it seems, when somebody leaves on foot from a place, I'm good at that. I can get out there and I can follow them and I would have a chance at finding them. When somebody drives off in a vehicle down a four-lane highway <laughs> with two children in the car, you have absolutely no easy way to follow them and know where they're going. I was sad for them all the time. No matter what I was doing, I was absolutely broken and sad and scared for what was happening to them. For the duration of that search for Mandy, for example, it became she was their child, technically, but in a way, the stakes are as high as if it were my daughter out there missing, and I was looking for her. I probably had been going maybe three hours, because we hadn't been getting detail for a while. We were in a really sandy area, and she was doing a lot of weaving in and out and around, and so the direction was changing quite a lot, um, crossing washes and turning back on herself and all of that kind of thing. She's getting tired and confused. And then she looked up the wash to see a little nine-year-old girl trotting towards her. I heard her saying, I'm Mandy, and she came into view. And <laughs> we, there was a general huzzah across the desert from people all over the place. I was just immediately sort of swept up in that. She's safe. She's safe. But when Hannah walked back to her home that night, she was still without her kids. It didn't help my children a bit what I did that day. And my children were still not out of danger, and I had not one whit of skills more to be able to get them out of danger. Eventually, her husband dropped her kids off at her door, only to take them again years later. The last and final time he took them, local detectives in the sheriff's office issued an interstate APB for her missing kids. While police across the country were searching for her son and daughter, Hannah waited by the phone. It was a chilly day here in the high desert. I had not been able to focus very well with the children being gone. I got a phone call from the investigator's office that they had located my ex-husband in another state, and they arrested him, um, and then went in, and the children were not there. Always before, when my children had been missing, I felt that they were alive in the world. When I got that phone call, 
that he'd been found and they had not. I did not have that feeling. I was completely empty. And I went outside in the desert. I stood there. I listened. I sat for long hours just on the ground, just sat down on the ground. I didn't track. I didn't think about tracking. I was just empty because I couldn't feel them anymore. It was a, a message on my answering machine. And the blinking light on, on my answering machine always signaled terror to me. But it took me some time to get to the machine and actually press the button and to listen to it. And they had left a message from the district attorney's office and the investigator saying, we found your children, we found your children. They were alive. And I just stood there, empty and weeping. (laughs) If this were some versions of Hollywood, it would have been tracking that brought my children home. The kind of tracking that I do is very simple, very down to earth. It is step by step. But none of those skills except the practice of tracking itself helped me with my children. The practice of tracking kept me alive and gave me hope. Big thanks to Hannah Nayella West for sharing her story at the Snap. And if you are wondering, Hannah's children are grown now and all relatively safe. Read more about Hannah's amazing story on her website, pointlastseen.com. And heads up, Hannah's website has links to resources for people suffering from domestic abuse. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Anna Sussman. After the break, what do you do when a life-threatening disease makes it too dangerous to save the person closest to you? Snap Judgment, Modern Family. Stay tuned. Pants with a belt, collared shirts, Oxfords. I haven't put on a suit jacket since the pandemic started. In this new world, we have new priorities. And Allbirds had something that might help with that, because feeling good goes beyond Allbirds amazing footwear. Introducing the all-new Trino underwear from Allbirds, whether it's a woman's bralette, brief, shorty, or thong, or the men's boxer briefs. With Allbirds Trino underwear, you can get intimate with nature, with intimates made with nature. Your private parts and the planet will love Allbirds Trino underwear. Find your pair at Allbirds.com. Everyone has stuff they don't use, and people will pay good money for those things on Mercari, the app that makes it fast and easy to sell almost anything. Just download the app, take a few pics, add a description, and it's listed. And everything ships, so there's no meetups. Sell and buy almost anything from home on Mercari. That's M-E-R-C-A-R-I, Mercari. Find it on the app stores or Mercari.com. 
from Snap Judgment's virtual quarantine closet. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Mother's Day special, Modern Family. My name is Glenn Washington, and our next story begins with a man who has taken the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. We hadn't seen any patients yet. We were preparing for it um, along the borders, the Ministry of Health. They are telling us, you guys have to prepare and we will help you prepare. You have to learn to wear these personal protective gear. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, it it was almost like that kind of call. In the capital Monrovia in Liberia, Dr. Philip Ireland worked at JFK Hospital and at the time, We were not prepared at all. The hospital, we were at an all-time low. We had nothing, and we were susceptible to all kinds of things. Even before they could learn how to use their new protective gear, people started showing up at JFK Hospital from the outlying areas. This patient, a 47-year-old Liberian female, she came to the hospital and... She walks through the door. She's bleeding from almost every orifice. She's vomiting blood. She has fever, chest pain. She's lethargic. She has low levels of energy. She can't hardly move. And I knew that she probably had Ebola. This is the epicenter of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. Liberia's tiny band of healthcare workers are throwing everything they have at Ebola. The particular woman, when she came in, she almost fell from the wheelchair. We had a physician assistant by the name of Stephen Vincent, and he attempted to stop that fall by reaching out and grabbing her. And he, he said, Ireland, this woman, she was falling, and I held her. This is how I knew that he touched the patient. And he said, I'm very concerned because I don't know what's going to happen. What did you tell him? Well, I, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't tell him anything specific. We just brushed it off as men. We don't think anything will happen to us. Even if they could live in denial for a moment, as soon as the test results came back for the 47-year-old woman, it showed she was positive for Ebola and they would have to implement emergency protocols. Anytime a patient is suspected of having Ebola, they will be taken to the ETUs, we call them. The Ebola treatment unit. Yeah. It's a secluded area outside of the hospital. You have uh, about multiple layers of triaging. You have all kinds of disinfecting um, systems. And can you tell us what happens, how how it progresses? What happens to Mr. Vincent? Did they send him to the Ebola treatment unit? No, he's still in the hospital at the time. Why? Why don't they send him to the ETU? Okay, so at that time, the the discussion, because this is fam... okay, Okay, let me just put it that way. He is part of this clinical staff. Vincent is family. This is what makes it so difficult to contain Ebola. The symptoms of sweating, vomiting, and bleeding, they all spread the virus. And if it's hard enough for a doctor to take care of their own in a hospital, imagine for a second what it's like in the homes, trying to take care of a sick loved one. In Liberia, if if a child is sick and, and the mother is there, the first thing she will do is touch. 
Okay, she will hold. She will try to feed. She will try to give the... And even if you tell her it's dangerous, she will definitely do it. And so that's why um, the public health intervention of not touching and not caring and not... Uh, doing, it didn't work out from the beginning, okay? Because mothers, especially mothers, you will have to... In, in, in West Africa, you will have to tell them all kinds of things. And, and one of the ways the public health guys did it was to tell them if you touch, you should put um, a plastic bag on your hand. But if you told them not to touch at all, it wasn't really happening. Just like Liberian mothers all over the country, Dr. Ireland faced a dilemma. What now? How could he help Stephen Vincent now that he had tested positive for Ebola? I had people telling me to, to stay away from Vincent, but then again, it's like, that's your colleague. Okay, so you've been working with these guys for many years, and then all of a sudden he's sick uh, with a um, life-threatening virus, and then I didn't feel too good about that. Ebola is extremely contagious, and the rest of the hospital staff was legitimately scared. Dr. Ireland kept reminding himself that all he had to do was follow proper protocols and rely on his training when he was caring for Stephen Vincent. Once I was so tired and I listened to his chest and I remember I put the stethoscope on my neck and I went to disinfect it. I don't know, probably touched me some kind of way. I don't, I, I, I don't remember the exact point. If, if there was a moment, was that the moment you think that you, at least the one you remember? Probably. Now, it's hard for people to pinpoint exactly when they contract the virus. But Dr. Ireland came home from work one day, and he was feeling extremely tired. Then I noticed at the time that I hadn't eaten anything for the entire day. And I had a mild fever. My heart is racing. And I'm thinking, wow, this is part of the symptom of Ebola. And I asked my wife and all the rest of the people to, to not touch me, to not come near me. Um, they should go other places because I'm sick. I don't know what I have. And so they um, semi-quarantined me in my room. But his eight-year-old daughter, Precious, she couldn't figure out why dad was locked up in his bedroom. She was curious. And so somehow she manages to find the key. She opens the door... And she came in the bedroom barefooted. She's standing right before me. She's like about three feet and I'm walking away from her. I was terrified. I was terrified. Dr. Ireland frantically called for someone to come get her. And then he turns to his wife and says, leave me here and go to our house in the countryside. So she piles everyone in the car. But Dr. Ireland's mother, who also lived with them, well, when it came time for her to leave, she said, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere. No, he couldn't walk around. He couldn't do anything by himself. So who gave him food and water and, and drink? Who would take care of him if everyone left him there? So I'm asking her to leave because of her safety. I wouldn't even listen. And she refuses. I don't have strength um, to do a lot of arguing. By this time, that 47-year-old woman who had given the disease to Stephen Vincent, she had passed away. And Dr. Ireland didn't want the same thing to happen to his own mom. I could get it myself. But if anybody else stay, they would get it faster because the others are not as careful as I would be. Mrs. Ireland knew that if she wanted to save her son, first, 
she had to protect herself. And I look at myself and I said, oh, and I just have on a house dress to go attend to him. And so I have to add on a raincoat. I had a, a raincoat. So she decided to make her very own Ebola protection suit. I had uh, a pack of gloves for the use to put chemicals in your to perm your hair. Still, she knew that was not going to cut it. She had to be covered from head to toe. So I put that on, and I put on gloves, and I put some my feet in a plastic bag, two plastic bags, tied them around my shoes. Then I added my spring coat, and it had a cap, a cap, and I just place it on too. The suit, well, it made it hard for Mrs. Ireland to show her affection and take care of her son the way a mother would. And here he was, no one could touch him, but just bring whatever he needed and put it down. He was yelling and crying for the pain in his head. My head, my head, all through the night. I started to vomit and I started to have diarrhea that couldn't stop. And I'm slipping in and out of sleep. Then he told me, I'm sleeping too much. Mom, if you don't hear me talk for a long time, just uh, wake me up, okay? I went to the door and I talked to him. Had a headache, any fever. I didn't even open the door, just talk to him. Try to eat something, but just to have something in your system to fight whatever you have to fight. With his mom inside the house taking care of him, outside the house, his cousins, his neighbors, his friends, they all gathered around. And Dr. Ireland could actually hear them from his window. Family members broke out in terrible cries. I mean, loud, woeful crying, wailing, all on the ground and groveling. And oh, yeah, people, people cried. When you hear that cry in Liberia, that's like, man, he's going to die. After four days of watching over her son pretty obsessively, Mrs. Ireland heard the sound of jazz coming from Philip's room. So she opens the door, and she finds her son sitting up in his chair, just strumming on the guitar. And I told Dr. Johnson, I said, oh, he was playing his guitar. I said, playing his guitar? I said, yes, he was playing his guitar today. We're all very happy. It's very encouraging. At that moment, did you feel like, wow, maybe we beat this? Maybe it's over? Yes, of course. But then it started deteriorating. It goes on like this for days, until finally an ambulance pulls up outside his house. And several of his old med school buddies jump out, and they're dressed in real Ebola containment suits. They tell him they found him a spot at an Ebola treatment unit at a different hospital. And when they arrived at this place, it was called Samaritan Purse, they gave him a bed in their ETU, right next to, of all people, Stephen Vincent, his old friend. And as bad as Dr. Ireland felt, Stephen Vincent had it even worse. He was grimacing, that he was in a lot of pain. And he was just breathing. He had this agonal breathing going on. I said, Vincent, you have a beautiful wife and children. We are going to get better, and we're going back to the emergency service at JFK. Aren't we going, Vincent? And I tried to get him to talk, but he wouldn't talk to me. And so I just stopped. At this point, Dr. Ireland is so tired and beaten down by the sickness that he just collapses back into sleep. 
And when I wake up from my sleep, Vincent is not moving, he's not breathing. And I call him several times. He was just lying there and not moving. I got real concerned and I started to call for the clinicians to come in to help or, or to see what happened. I'm still very, 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 very sick. So there is only a certain amount of energy I can use to maintain this. And so when I run out of energy, I just stop and I just stare at Vincent. I just stare, I just continue to stare at him. I am not shouting anymore. I just stare at, stared at um, Vincent. I know that he's gone. And so I'm just silent. Uh, one of the things that's going through my mind was that, wow, he had his children and his wife. They will have to hear this news and it will not be good. It's not a good thing. I was thinking about mom. I wonder if she's infected or not. Vincent had expired. I wonder how many more of us at the hospital uh, this will affect. I, I wasn't thinking about, man, w would you make it? The news was bad. As the Ebola virus spread, it claimed the lives of several top doctors who Dr. Ireland had known for years. But here, in the care of this ETU, they were battling on patient by patient. A physician assistant by the name of Patrick came in. He cleaned from every crevice on my body, removed the filth of diarrhea and vomiting from on me. And as he's cleaning me, he's telling me, man, you're going to make it. We're going to go back and do procedures together at the hospital. He puts me back on the bed, reestablishes the IV line and put fluids up and gave me my medication. And then tells me that he will be back the next shift to see me. And after that, I felt so, so positive. I felt much, much better. And I marked this time as the beginning of my, my healing process. Dr. Ireland was released to home care to make room for more patients. And when he finally gets back to his house, all of his relatives are there, just lined up in the driveway. Well, everyone except for his mother. She had to be quarantined. The doctors needed a window of time to make sure that her homemade suit had done the trick, that it had kept her safe. It took 21 days, and they finally said she was okay. And yeah, you can now see your son. So after my 21 days, then I came to see him. And he was under the ETU. He was still not too strong, and he was in his bed. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I got in, that, in the house. I, that way he saw me. <laughs> he said, here, is, here comes the real doctor. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful feeling. I, I just look at her and say thank you, you know. The best mom in the world. I've told her that I love her very, very much. I've said thank you probably over a thousand times. <laughs> She's like, enough already. Her reaction is almost like, that's my duty. This is something that we should all do. This is why I'm here. Okay, so she has that attitude all the time. Yeah, it was like doing your duty. I mean, it just fell into place that it was your responsibility to do this, and you were doing it as you did it before. I mean, it wasn't anything strange. I mean, it was just falling in place. What you had to do, you did. Big love. To the mama bear, the amazing Victoria Collins Ireland, and big love as well to Dr. Philip Ireland for fighting the fight. 
The original score and sound design for that piece was by Renzo Gorio, and the story was produced by Jake Halpern with assistance from Mark Ristich, Anna Sussman, Adiza Egan, and Eliza Smith. Special thanks as well to Yale Engine for their help with this story. Now, Snappers, I want to take some time out today for a very special listener. Her mother wrote to me and let me know that one of the youngest Snappers, she's spending a lot of time in the hospital listening to Snap. And we love the young Snappers, the Whippersnappers. Orly's just 11 years old, one of the biggest Snappers in the land. And Orly, I know you've had a very tough year. It is not fair. It's not. But Orly, we want you to know that it's not just us here at Snap Studios that is sending you love. It is all of Snap Nation everywhere, the four corners of the globe. So if you've got love for an 11-year-old snapper, email us here, love at snapjudgment.org. That's love at snapjudgment.org. We're going to forward it on. Make sure you feel it orally. Do you feel it? Because this episode is the orally episode. You get better, right? And then you come tell us a story. Now, it's happened again. And if you missed even a moment of the early episode, get the amazing Snap Judgment Podcast. Subscribe to Snap Podcast that brings the light, the beat, and the love. And if you do, in fact, love Snap Storytelling, storytelling currently being made remotely, virtually, made for you. If you love this stuff, support it. Now, if you like stories that are made in the dark of night, season four of Spooked, it is alive and well. Get it right now, luminarypodcast.com. Snap is brought to you by the team that always tells their mama they love them. All of us do this except, of course, for Mark. Mark doesn't even say anything. I'm kidding, Martha. Mark loves you more than you will ever know. I love you too. When all of this is over, we're going to have dinner at my place. And by Mark, I mean the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Bristich. Anna, amazing mother, Sussman, Mama's boy, Pat McCity Miller, every mother's dream, Lindsay Gorio, the unsentimental John Facile, Shayna Sheely cooks better than your mom, Liz Mack doesn't cook better than your mom, Marissa Dodd has a maternal instinct, Nika, yes ma'am, sing, Eliza, no ma'am, Smith, Lauren Newsom was never punished as a child, tailed to cot required the strictest discipline, so Wiley never tells. Nancy Lopez honestly finds the cutest dresses for her little girl, and Leon Morimoto will back me up on that. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could wake up in the middle of the night with a sinking feeling in your gut that you forgot something. Something parent-related. Today, oh no, you forgot Mother's Day. You didn't send nothing. Well, don't worry, player. Just send her this episode of Snap. We've got you. And this scenario actually occurs. And believe me, this scenario actually occurred. You would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is P. 